Welcome to the Rock and Roll Survivors Podcast, dedicated to those in front of the curtain, behind the curtain, and somewhere in between. I'm Kristen, and on season one, the legendary rock star Patty Quattro joins us to discuss her time with the band Fanny, the fabulous feedback from the international press, David Bowie's contributions to the fifth and final Fanny album, and so much more. So let's get started. So there's so many things that we have discussed, Patty, that I need to unpack with you. I know you don't have a lot of memories. Let's just start off with Rock and Roll Survivors, the album cover, the photo shoot. Of, I mean, obviously you remember crawling out of the mud, but you don't remember <laughs> that much about <laughs> how it all came about. We had talked a little bit about the photographer, John Bilecki, who I'm still trying to locate. The one thing I, when I was looking at the album, it was photographed in Atlanta, Georgia. Do you have any memory of that? Go figure. I can only think, this is what I think happened. We were in the midst of, you know, making the first album with Neil and all that and Casablanca. And I think we were on the road and they must have wanted to get a picture done. And Atlanta, we were there maybe playing a gig. And so they did it. I, I think that's the only thing that makes sense. They wouldn't have flown us to Atlanta to get in mud. I kept thinking that. I thought, just go to our backyard and, you know, drain the pool. Yeah. We could have done that. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. I don't know. So speaking of Neil and Casablanca, we've spoken a lot about him. You teased us on the last episode saying something to the effect of Neil, well, he was a visionary. We know that. But Neil threw a lot of parties for the gals, for the band. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any stories or things you can elaborate on. Um. It was just, you know, Larry wrote a book. He was the vice president, I believe, and I was closer to him. Um, he wrote a book and party every day. And he talked all about, I mean, every day was a party, a lot of drugs and stuff. Of course, I, I was pretty straight, so I didn't partake. I'm boring that way. I was brought up in Detroit and it, that stuff scared me. I watched everybody around me dying and ha things happening. So I didn't really get in I was into the music that that was hot yeah once and I got down on the floor and hopped around like a frog never <laughs> did it again <laughs> a total embarrassment so so I mean it's funny so uh yeah I, they were just normal parties you know a lot of people the staff everybody going crazy not all the girls came to them all the time I hung a little bit when we were in town but the thing is we missed a lot of it because we were on the road they got us out on the road for the U.S. tour so yeah we had a few with Kiss there and different people but we were all working musicians so they were you know just on it to party within their staff it was a known thing. That that office was a party town. And the camel, the camel was great. Everybody I want to talk, talk about, about the camel a little bit more. But I recently was, well, I guess not that recently, about a year ago, I was a guest on a podcast called Rarified Air. And it's a child of a celebrity interviews children of celebrities. Oh. And the host asked me, Josh is his name. Josh asked me if it was true that Casablanca, I can't say it, if it was true that Casablanca had a slush fund for drugs. And I, oh. I said, oh, of course they did. Of course they had a slush fund. I think of every company did. But what I didn't add on that podcast was also hookers, call girls. That was also on the payroll. And every, yeah, they had everything. 
<laughs> was a party. He was he was having a blast, Neil, with his crazy record company, and he was, you know, signing people that were different. He loved what he was doing, and you could tell. I mean, he just had this outgoing personality and everything, like your dad. And it was great. It was great fun. It was. It, it wasn't ever a chore talking to him about music and all that. He was more open-minded. You could discuss anything with him. I love that about him. He was a visionary. He really, really was. And yeah. just yeah. go back to the camel story for all of us, because there's a wonderful quote I want to read you from Bree as well, from back in the day. But she, we we talk about this stuffed camel in his office. So it's like a stuffed animal. It's not a real stuffed camel it was it's like it was a huge it, it was, was huge. huge it was life-size yes. and then also there was a palm tree do you remember the stuffed palm tree yes and that also he put sand all over the floor because yes. of course it was all about Casablanca and Neil Bogart and yeah. Humphrey Bogart and all of that so yes the he camel, wanted the whole atmosphere and he, he lived it. he lived it it was great he <laughs> lived it well and I have a funny story about so I've had it the song from your album that's the Second hit, is that that? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, Second so one. my dad and I are in Neil's office at Casablanca, and there's the camel, and my dad's pacing around with his hands on his hips like he used to as his brain was working, and mm -hmm. Neil was behind his desk, and I'm just kind of hanging out, and they're trying to figure out what the next single from your album is going to be, oh and God. I say I've had it because I loved that song. I thought Nikki's her way of singing it, I thought it was perfect. And so Neil so seriously looked at me and he he was such a great guy and said, you think I've had it? You think that should be the hit, the next single? And I said, oh, it's going to be a hit. It's totally going to be a hit. And yes, that should be the next single. And he said, all right, I'll make I've had it, the single. And he said, I'll make you a deal. You get to have anything you want if it goes to number one, anything oh. you want. And I turned oh and I pointed God. to the camel and I said, I want the stuffed camel. And he goes, deal. And that's oh my God. Now, is that true or not? I don't know. He may have already wanted I've had it, but I always take credit for the fact that I was like, I want the song to be I've had it. Take the credit. And Nikki, who would be more perfect to sing that song? She was so incensed with the uh, machinations of uh, record companies and all that shit. And, you know, it would be Nikki that would say, I've had it. <laughs> she perfect when she sang it. And she, she delivered it. Yeah. Perfectly. 100% agree.
okay, I want to move on to, you had talked about your philosophy on dressing, your your mm-hmm. stage costumes. And the one line you said was just be genuine. And I, I totally agree with you. I mean, if you want to dress sexy and you're comfortable being sexy, do it. If you want to dress down, do it. But I wanted to, first of all, hear your talk a little bit more about this philosophy. And then I want to read you a couple of quotes from the 1970s, 1974 and five about your sexiness. But I would like you to first elaborate a little bit. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I never have believed in using the sexuality thing on stage as a a way to go. I just believe that people should be free enough to present themselves as they want to be presented. And if that means, like in Fanny, they wanted to dress down to keep the focus on the music and all that. So Levi's, T-shirts, all that business. I didn't think that way. No. I thought if if you want to dress sexier, do it. I don't care if you want to go up there nude, if that's your truth, you know. But if you want to be raw, you know, I was into leathers and stuff like that and raw looking stuff. God, be yourself. How can you play your music full tilt and get into it heavy if you're not feeling comfortable on stage? So dresses up. It's my God, it's music. It's it's stage presence. It's part of it. So to me, dressing down was silly. It was like trying to negate, you know, like, well, I'm a woman, but I'm going to prove it to you by just dressing down and playing my music. To me, that was the wrong outlook. You know, be genuine, be yourself. We had costuming in the uh, Detroit bands, Pleasure Seekers and Cradle. We had a showgirl making our costumes. And she, she was a former big showgirl. She had a costume of ours that was a black jumpsuit, and it had a cutout around the boobs and the lower, and it was black underneath with the gold spangly on top but it spotlighted the two feminine areas and it got so much controversy and she came up with it. That's fabulous. And we used to go to New York city by the paraphernalia. They were into the body stockings and all that. My dad would look at us going out. He'd say, you look like a whore. You know, (laughs) we had the body stocking on. You couldn't see nothing, but we were very avant-garde. And when I came to, when I came to Fanny, mm-hmm. um, nobody said that they wanted to dress down. That wasn't even discussed. We just sort of wore what we wore. I think even Jean and Nikki maybe felt a little freer. We just dressed up, you know, whatever was, you know, trending at the moment, whatever we felt good in. And then we got into the costuming with David. And uh, and he passed comments what he thought we should do, and we turned it over to Mary Basil, and uh, she came she came up with exactly what he had thought. It was fabulous. And for those who may not have listened to our previous episodes, the David in this case is David Bowie, who yes. helped design the costumes for the cover and the and the tour of Rock and Roll Survivors. So I want to read you a quote from 1974 from Cream Magazine. Mm. Now, I'm quoting them, people, so please. (laughs) So, quote, and he's talking about Fanny. Quote, seems this bazoomful bevy of new cats 
whom you may remember from such manwitch waxings as Charity Ball, got a call from the Hefner organization, offering to allow them to pose in the bufferino for P-Boy, of course, Playboy, including, according to a release from P- Fanny's PR outfit, i.e. my dad, including showing their pubic hair, dun-dun-dun-dun. Heavy breathing was heard in the executive washrooms across Bunnyland at the thought of these rock and roll newbies undraped and airbrushed, not to mention the group's millions of pubescent male fans who already got naturals down their lifelines after four albums. But the fannies themselves took a strong line in favor of symbiotic exploitation, or at least equal spread, and were having none of it. Gene was quoted as saying, quote, we'll pose nude when Hugh Hefner poses for the centerfold with a heart on. Let them show Mick Jagger's cock first or somebody cute, close quote, she said. <laughs> Would you like to comment on that, Patty? Oh, it, was, it was perfect. Perfect thing to say back to that kind of a thing. And we did after we became the cream dream for Cream Magazine. That was... Uh, a great picture, very colorful, and it was Fanny, and we did it in Detroit. So we did do that, but we never did post for Hugh. Poor well, baby. Poor the, baby. <laughs> a, couple, a couple of threads here. But the interesting thing is in this same particular 1974 article from Cream, they continue on. So this is before you became Cremates. They continue on and say, Fanny turned down a chance to be Cremates of the Month in spite of the fact that we'd already proven our transcendence of erotopolitical oinksmanship by running a centerfold of Martin Mull's tushy in what passed for living color. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess they convinced you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they did. They did. They convinced us. I don't know if any other girl bands after us did it, but we were the one. I mean, that picture has been around quite a while. And it was in there. They did a documentary, too, on Cream Days. It was quite a it was a Detroit based magazine. So, well, you know, is. we had our own uh, thing going on, as Detroit Rock City always does. And they gave a huge competition to Rolling Stone and Circus, those magazines. My God, Cream was well known for being very irreverent and very into the musical arena in the best of ways. So it it was quite an organization. But yes, we were Cream Dream. One of the quotes that I found in, in the press, and I believe this was in England, during the time that you were touring there, this was so funny to me. Jean was quoted as saying, She says, in England, we had these little boys pulling at our clothes. They just rushed the aisles. They came into the dressing room and wanted to touch us. But the roles are reversed. And they had trouble saying, can I come back to your hotel room? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want to hear your response to that. But I do want to share a behind the scenes as your manager story. My dad, he always spoke about the fact that it was fascinating to him that you could, and these were his words, you could have the ugliest man in the world like Tiny Tim and women would throw themselves at him, underwear, marry him, anything. But the guys, the male fans for Fanny were so intimidated by that he was fascinated that you didn't get hit on in the same way. So I I would love to hear your take on it. it. It was exactly like you're explaining. They were terribly intimidated. I mean, they're in this position that, 
you know, males weren't in because there weren't a lot of women musicians floating around. And it was a pretty good looking band and the whole thing. We called, we had our nickname for them. We called them gropies. <laughs> and they never groped, but that's that was our little playful nickname. Oh, oh the And they would come up front and the whole thing and send us letters and hang out. It was hilarious. They were cute, you know. We I mean you had to have the groupies, gropies, whatever. Groupies. I'm never gonna yeah. call them groupies again. That's so no. wonderful. Was there a difference in how you were treated by your male gropies in the US versus your male gropies in England? No, no, it was the same. We, you know, they just wanted to be close and be part of it. And honestly, I mean, that translates sort of to the male musicians, right? All through my decades of music. I mean, they always wanted to hit on us, but they ended up, and we'll get into that, but they ended up having so much respect for what we were doing that they weren't what I would call gropies though they tried. And there's a lot of funny stories on that stuff. A lot. Can you come up with a couple? I'd love to hear. <laughs> uh, well, I remember my sister, Nancy, uh, I think it was with uh, ELP. And one of them was into her and he flew her to New York City. He ended up sleeping on the couch. I mean, we, you know, we just we just weren't loose girls, but they were always trying. And I had the same thing with various guys. It just, we weren't good. We wanted it to be about the music. And we ended up, geez, we played hide and seek with Mountain in Detroit. Oh, wow. Instead of any kind of sexual encounter. After their gig, they came over for pasta and we went to the war memorial and we played hide and seek in the green maze. I mean, what band does that? I love that. And in fact, I'm such an L.A. kid that when you said we played hide and seek, I was like, "Ooh, is that a euphemism for you fooled around? No, obviously not. You <laughs> yeah, really played hide it and would seek. be in L.A. <laughs> that's exactly what it would be. Not in Detroit. Wow, that's fabulous. Well, speaking of musicians who hit on you and we have many stories to get to, but mm -hmm. I would like you to talk a little bit about none other than Mr. Sir Roger Daltrey. Can you tell us the story about when you were touring with Fanny in Europe? And you can go back a little bit, but we have many more stories to tell. So this is just a bit of a teaser. Yeah, because there's a lot of uh, the New York City, which we'll get to, is that that's our first encounter. And it was early on. I had a lot of connections with him. Great guy. So kind. Such a sweetie. And that was in his Tommy days with those gorgeous blonde curls. And we just hit it off. So we hung. You know, and he had a lot of respect for what I was doing. He quoted me in his book, you know, that he had enjoyed, you know, our times together and all that. And uh, and how talented he thought I was, whatever. It was really sweet. He called me and said, can I use you in the book? Mr. I think it's Mr. Kibblewhite or whatever that book is that he put out, you mm -hmm. know, last few years ago. And then when we got to England and Fanny... He was trying to look me up. So my record company came up and said, you know what? He keeps calling. What do you, can you just call him back? We were on a tight schedule. So I don't, you know, we didn't meet up on that trip, but he, not for lack of him trying, but he was just a great guy. I really had a great time with him. You are being so coy. 
<laughs> I, I want juicier details. Well, he's got a family, you know, and well, that his he had a pretty. His wife was very cognizant of road life and what it was like, you know, and the sexuality and stuff. And I mean, he was out on the road, and this was maybe before he was married because there were different encounters, but. She didn't mind what he did on the road. She was very open. She used to be Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend. And Foxy Lady was written about her. Did you know that? I, I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. Roger's wife went with Jimmy, and he stole her away. And it turned out that her family, uh, I think, lived down the street from him and stuff. I mean, they they ended up marrying and everything, have a wonderful life together. But she didn't care. She was understanding of all of it. And she was a model. And uh, I never got to meet her, obviously. But, uh, you know, he was on the road and we met up and we were attracted. And that, you know. Rock All right. and roll. To be continued. I'm getting more out of you if it kills There's me. more stories. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. We will get there. <laughs>